It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome back, family. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And as I mentioned, I'm really excited about the guests that we have this morning. Buckle up. I'm sure so many of you bookmark his threads on Twitter, if you still use Twitter, <laughs> as I do to follow the breadcrumbs and the history and the context that he gives, follows his writing everywhere. And he's a journalist. He's a culture critic. He's a writer. I think he wrote for a couple of TV shows as well. He's living his Black life. And I am so happy that he decided to come on Sunday Civics this morning. And he has a new book coming out, which we're going to talk about as well. I'm not going to talk about it in depth because I didn't read it. And you know, I don't like talking to people before I read their book. <laughs> but maybe he'll come back from that. But welcome to the front of the classroom for the very first time, Michael Harriet. Hey, Michael. Hey, how are you? Great to be here. Thank you so very much for making the time to be with us this Sunday morning. As I mentioned, I do a lot of bookmarking of your threads when I'm on Twitter, not that much as much anymore, but love your writing and your stories and really add context to some of the things that I do on a daily basis in terms of political organizing. And I'm looking forward to the book, looking forward to reading it. But before we get into the depths of what you have going on, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every guest for the first time they're on the show by you telling us the story of your first civic action. Let's see. So my first civic action was like probably before I can remember because so we always knew what election season, when election season was coming up because I, my grandmother and then my mom drafted us. We would have to go hand out sample ballots, voter information, voter re registered voters. Like when I was, I don't know, four, five, six years old, it seems like as soon as I could remember how to walk or knew how to walk. And so it was always an adventure because like, it sounds like, you know, something out of a movie, but it was mostly just like running from dogs old ladies giving us candy popsicles like we knew who had the pops the best popsicles so like we'd always fight to go on certain to certain people house because we knew like this lady named mother down the street she always gave you popsicles now she had a dog but it was a little dog and she actually fed the dog coca-cola this is no lie and so you like i got to know my neighborhood and everybody in my neighborhood by doing this i guess they call it canvassing now yeah, we, yep. we just yeah. So we just used to call it, you know, we got to go do the voter thing, and uh, and it was always voting voting season. We had to do the voting thing, and it used to be aggravating. Sometimes it was fun, and like my sisters and I have so many stories about it. The funniest probably is when my sister got sick in somebody's house, and uh, as they were signing the voter registration, she threw up on their carpet. But we, yeah, I have a billion of those stories. I absolutely love that. That is that voter thing. 
because I have several cousins and others who, you know, text me and they be like, when we voting again or when we when's the voting thing happening? <laughs> you know, like this weekend I'm in Philly and I'm texting all of my family members that I'm going to be in Philly campaigning and they, oh, for the voting thing, right? Like it's a normal, a normal thing in, in terms of that. And I love that it was like just part of what you did, right? Like there wasn't any special, you know, conversation that just had to happen. It was like, you're going to do this and it doesn't matter that you can't vote. Like you got something, you play a part in this. I think that's important. And also just meeting your neighbors and engaging. Like we take for granted the amount of things we do in black communities that we know each other, right? Like that helps us build community and know each other. Like, and it's not just going to church. It's not just sort of the institutional things. It's like the normal day-to-day -day engagement that happens in communities for you to know people. Yeah, yeah, we knew everybody in our neighborhood, and it was probably because of that. It, I mean, there were so many other kind of civic engagements. You know, I, I realized, I didn't realize till I got older, kind of, you don't realize what was going on, like when, like, candidates would stop by my mother's house. And I remember, like, I remember having to go through voter rolls and see, like, who's moved, and who, but I didn't know what it was, right? Like we would just have to go through like th you, this was back when remember the the long printout like the connected piece of papers that was perforated and they had yeah those yeah on, on the, the sides side. right right like we would have to go through those and I never kind of knew what we were doing until I got older and uh, you realize oh those were the voter rolls like I didn't even know <laughs> until I just realized it oh you could just go see who votes in your community, who's registered to vote, and then see if they're not registered to vote. Like, oh, Miss Eddie House is missing, so we got to go to her house. And yeah, so a lot of that civic engagement, you don't realize you were actually doing civic engagement until you were older. And you know, one of the things you recently shared a Twitter thread which, I don't know if it was recently or maybe last year, it's one of my saved and my favorites where you were talking about how particular family, similar to like Lowndes County, right? Where folks were trying to, they knew they were the majority of a county of or of a community and were trying to exercise, right? Taking control, right? And these are folks, you know, now we think of candidates, they have to be polished. They gotta have a doctorate. They have to have worked in this administration and sort of all of those kinds of things. Whereas people were like, well, so-and-so can read and write so he can be treasurer and, you know, so-and-so can be, you know, a sheriff or do this or whatever. It's just like, I just need to know what the position is and what it does. And we can identify people in our own community who can do those things. And since we're the majority, we can just elect it. And I remember being introduced to those kinds of stories very, very young because I come from a family who believes Black people are just not like we should control our own. So that was always preached to me. But it wasn't until I then discovered, discovered these stories at an early age of Black people not asking permission, you know, just doing just creating where I was like, oh, we can do this on a political, you know, like political. I don't need anybody's permission to do this. And I think the way in which you storytell gives that permission for people to think about that. Like, it's just like, you don't have to wait for permission. 
you know, this is not some new thing you're discovering. This is actually our history. This is our, you know, birthright of what we've been doing in this country. Is that your goal <laughs> in, in sort of weaving these stories together? I think part of it is, and I don't know if I have a specific goal other than in storytelling, right? What you do, because you can tell a story about, for instance, Martin Luther King, right? And with, or, you know, the Selma boycott. And people know that story and people will remember it. But I think those stories kind of become the standard and not the everyday things that Black people do because those stories just don't seem as hyperbolic or as exciting as when the police came and beat you to bits on the Selma Bridge, right? Like we have all of our aunts and uncles have stories about how we all struggle to gain our rights, our freedom, our equality. And they might not be with a famous name or a famous incident. They might not be even in a history book, but those collective if actions are just as or even more important than those famous stories or the the ones that we read about in the social studies book. Yeah. And I, I think it actually empowers people, right, that you don't have to be the Martin King. You don't have to be the named person that there are one, you can do these things in your everyday lives and your everyday interactions. And then two, which, you know, I preach about all the time is go back in your family and undiscover, like, and uncover these folks because we're so trained to focus on the famous person that we miss, as you, you mentioned, your aunt, your uncle, your mama, <laughs> you know, who was involved in you know, did work, looked at voter rolls and registered people like you're, you're missing that. And what's the saying that they have? We're like, we're losing recipes, right? Like we're losing recipe because we're also not going and thinking about the everyday, our aunts, our uncles, our oldest sister, our, you know, like th that have those stories of those actions that they think is insignificant, that you may think is insignificant but actually play a larger role in terms of who we are in this country. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. One of the things I did, right, is to preserve that stuff. And this is something that anybody can do and anybody should, everybody should do, right? Like you might not be a writer, but you can go on Amazon and get like a $25 digital recorder. And I bought a bunch of them and just gave them to my aunts and uncles. And say, I might not be there, but when you remember a thing that happened, just tell it into this, this recorder. And you might be by yourself. I have a cousin that works at a, at a hotel. And when she's working overnight, she might record, she might remember a story or when they're all sitting around talking, they'll just record it because they all have them. And I think like stuff like that preserves history and you get to see not only where you came from, but like the ingredients that built you, because we all are just essentially recipes, right? So we get to see what went into building ourselves. Yeah, I think that's that's really, really important. And, you know, 
during, you know, during crisis moments, people think about this when families, larger families come together. I have a huge, huge family on my father's side. And, you know, we all get together, obviously, in funerals. Like, literally, we can fill our whole church up with just our family members. And then everybody always says, we need to get together more than just, <laughs> you know, like the, the funerals. And we hear all of the stories when we go over to the mama's house or the cousin's house who funeral, you know, it is. And, you know, telling the stories. And, you know, like you said, I'd be like, I'm recording this story. I'd be <laughs> like yelling out, you know, to everybody to like to, to preserve this. But being able to add context because everyone is, you know, maybe on the ancestry DNA and trying to go back to, you know, century ago or, or something like that, but you have people living amongst you and really, and really to tell the story of our connection to this country and how we have helped build it and change it and mold it, but also just transitioning. Not that I like centering white people a lot, but, you know, telling the truth in terms of the narrative that has been built that we have not contributed and that white people have built this amazing thing that's amazing. And why are you trying to change it? Yeah, I mean, that is important. I always point out that like so I'm from South Carolina and until the 1940 census for most of its existence, South Carolina was a majority black state. So if you think that the minority of people in South Carolina built that, like, it's kind of a crazy idea to have in your head to think that, like, all of the wealth, you know, before the, the American Revolution, not Boston, not New York, not Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, was the richest city in America, right? Like, it had, like, three times the average income, the, the average citizen in Charleston had like three times the average income of somebody like in Boston or New York. 40% of enslaved people came through Charleston Harbor. If you think that that wealth in that state and even the idea, the ideas that built this country came from the minority of people, that, I mean, that's almost an absurd thing to believe. I remember once a few years ago, I was hired to write a story about the plantation tourism industry in Charleston. So I went to this plantation and it's, it's still in tech. It's still huge. And it's only like a fraction of what it used to be. But I mean, it's the size of a small town. And so someone on the tour asked, like, how did this plantation survive the recent flood, which they call the one of those 100 year floods. Now this plantation was at the nexus or the confluence of, of the Stono River and the Atlantic Ocean. So like there was a real, real flood. And so the guy said, well, the people they enslaved built the levee systems to grow rice. And so they could let water in and dam it, keep it there and then let it out when the rice growing season was over. And so when the hurricane came and the place started flooding, they just opened those levees and it protected it. Now, some Africans 200 years ago engineered that on their own. Nobody taught them. Nobody knew how to grow rice. Nobody knew how to engineer these systems. And 
it preser- it's still preserving that place. And to think that when you go to that plantation, it's named after the 14 white people and not the 200 and something enslaved people that they enslaved on that piece of land is a crazy, crazy idea. And that <laughs> is like those amazing stories like that, right, are what I think what's missing, right, in adding the, the context and it's empowering to know, right, like that nobody asked them to, they didn't get a contract from the state and from, like, from the city, and it was a whole big ribbon-cutting ceremony. One, they were enslaved, and two, they, in, like, their ingenuity, their craftsmanship built something that preserves someone else's wealth, right? Like that <laughs> contributed to somebody else's wealth. And that that is an amazing story, even when you don't know their names. And, and it's a shame that we don't know their names. It's a shame that that isn't celebrated and that isn't put up because of racism, right? And <laughs> because of this exploitative financial system that we live in that honors the people who own the thing and not just the people who also build the thing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Ahead, the other thing you, it's important to point out though, is that like, like we like to think of, like we like to think that those names are lost to history or that like where we came from, we don't know, like our people, we don't know where we came from. And that's not true, right? Like, so when they built those rice plantations, like, they didn't know how to grow rice. They went to the specific areas of West Africa where there were rice-growing people and got them to come over here and through violence or the threat of violence, engineer those same systems here, right? So the rice industry started in in Charleston because the people who came here, the people who started South Carolina were from the Bahamas. So they thought they were going to be able to grow like citrus and it didn't work. And then they tried silkworms and it didn't work, but there was yellow fever. And if you ever been to South Carolina, you know how those mosquitoes are. And so people were getting sick and dying. And, but they noticed that the enslaved people were not, and they were healthy and they were like, what are they eating? Well, they were growing their own rice and that's how, so they went back to where those people were from. And they, so they knew where they got those people from. They documented, documented it, right? Those people, they kept meticulous records because it was a property ultimately, right? So they kept meticulous records so they could let other people know where to go get the black people who knew how to engineer these systems and knew the horticulture and the agriculture to build a cash crop. It's not, it wasn't just some arbitrary running and picking up Africans. It's a crazy mm-hmm. thing to believe that they did like they that they lost this information or they didn't pass it down to their children because they wanted them, their children to have the same wealth. And then when we tell these stories, we know that like that information exists. Right. So the only thing that you can surmise is, oh, they just didn't want you to know. Right. Because they, they documented it. They kept it in books. Those books and those plants like that plantation still exists. So that information still exists. And almost, you know, because first of all, we have to realize. Right. So they pay taxes on those people. We know the names. Right. They, they pay taxes. If you look at like the 1790 census. If you go look at the 1790 census, they could tell you exactly how many enslaved people were brought into each colony and not just like 
we brought some slaves in, they delineate from whether they came from which Caribbean country or whether they came from Africa. We know all of this stuff. It's not like a mystery. They just buried it, hid it, right? But it's not like these things are unknown and black people don't know where they came from. We know where we came from. I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I find it so, what's the phrase, grind my gears when people are saying, we don't even know where we came from. I'm like, how? How? <laughs> like, wow. like, you can't make that blanket statement in terms of we don't know where you come. Because if you ask it more, more than likely, most average black people, where are your people from? I mean, that's the common question we asked each other, like in community, where are your people from? Right. And it says to me that there has been in our culture this need to be able to connect us to our ancestors and to where we are, that that's even a question we commonly ask amongst us. Where are your people from? Oh, you're from South Carolina. Oh, I'm from North Carolina. Right. And on and on. Like, you know, my grandmother, when you ask my grandmother when she passed, you know, passed away at 96. Oh, I'm from Long Creek. I'm from, you know, like they know the particular. And then if you, she was 96, if you at, pushed her more, she could tell you where near camp, what plantation near, right? <laughs> because my people were on the so-and-so plantation, right? Like there was always this push and we can see the residual of that, of us even asking the question, where are your people from? Like, I know you live in Brooklyn, but where are your people from? Like North, oh, North yeah. Carolina. Okay. Right. Like, you know, it's a common thing. So even repeating the thing of we don't even know where we're from. Right. And as you're saying, like there, you know, are records that exist and, you know, maybe it doesn't have the specific, you know, ethnic tribe or, you know, sort of anything like that. But there is this connection that we know and not to internalize that we're disconnected from this history. Right. Like we are more connected than like many of the white people who came here, right? Because some mm -hmm. of them were fugitives. Some of them were just like, some of them, a lot of them, most of them, actually, when you read history books, like died on the way or died when they got here from ineptitude. Because, you know, the first people who built America were aristocrats who didn't know how to farm. So like the first settlers in America, you know, almost all of them died like 90 percent of them perished because mm -hmm. they were drinking the same water where they pooped in or because they were not immune to the disease or because they attacked the natives so most of them died and some of them had to eat each other but they so a lot of them don't know where they came from like yeah. the the opposite is true for us yeah. Yeah. And my, my husband has an annoyance. I don't know if you've seen this on the not so history channel, like where they have this whole series about like what happened to the white people who came here for, was it Roanoke or some other thing or whatever. <laughs> and anytime he sees the commercial, he yells at the TV. He's like, they died. <laughs> he was like, that's what happened to them. And they came over here. They didn't know how to survive. And them MFs died. Like that's like that's what happens to them, you know. And so he gets so irate. It's just like, why is this this great mystery? Like it's not a great mystery. This is what like this is what's happened. It's science. It's logical. Like let's move on from that point. So I want to move to you know something we that I mentioned earlier about some of these stories in terms of the importance of them. That storytelling, the importance of them in political and civic engagement. In that knowing that it there were conscious decisions 
made conscious budget decisions, conscious, conscious legislative decisions made to uphold a system of oppression. And the reason why telling the origin stories of those conscious decisions of oppression are important as we seek to one, shine the light on the issue, but also dismantle and make something anew. Yeah. Like, so all of that, like I always, like one of my favorite sayings is history is not a thing that happened. It is a thing that is happening. Right. And all of that ties to each other. So you can't really understand what's going on if you don't go back to history. Right. So when you talk about critical race theory, right, you have to understand the long history of the stuff that we were just talking about, like erasing history or whitewashing history. When the just like, for instance, the idea that the Jamestown people were captured by aliens or the people in Roanoke just disappeared. No, they died because they were rich people who came over here. And if you read the diaries, they thought they were going to come over here and find like jewels growing on trees because they didn't know things. Right. So they died. And understanding that real history is important to understand what's going on nowadays. Here's a great example. Right. So People often say, well, about Black people, well, if Black people would just value education, not understanding that, like, there is a history of Black people valuing education that is more important to Black people than white people have ever considered, right? So if Black people didn't value education, they wouldn't have had to write laws to say, we will kill you if you keep learning. Right. That was right. one of the first laws in America. You can't you wouldn't have to do that to a people who didn't value education if they didn't value if black people didn't value education. Like what mama is going to send her son to integrate a school and let white people spit on them for what if they don't value education? If they don't value, right? Right. right. Like who is going to allow their children to learn how to read at night under the threat of death? if they didn't value education. So all of a sudden they believe that black people don't value education when the truth is, the question is like, how do you know, right? Like if black people have never had a equal education in the history of this country, then it is impossible to know, but here is the thing. The American education system exists because of black people, right? So the, the idea of, Public, guaranteed public education is an idea that was created by South Carolina's 1868 constitution. It didn't exist in this country on this continent before black people invented it, right? Like we did that. All white people's education is a product of black people valuing education, right? It didn't exist. And, and like even after the Civil War, remember South Carolina's biggest school, the, the University of South Carolina, became a majority black school. Like, like technically, it's a historically black college. Like, and, and you just think about all the HBCUs that were founded. Like, we built whole institutions from scratch, not like places like Princeton and Harvard that were built by Cotton Mather and white aristocrats and, and moneyed white people who got head rights for enslaving people right like we're talking about the poorest people 
in the history of this country created institutions that still last to this day because they valued education. So if you know history, you can't know history and think that, right? And you can't think that if you even have a rudimentary understanding of history, but if you believe in a hit, or if you have learned a history that was whitewashed that didn't tell you that the first public education system was created by a majority black constitutional delegation in 1868, you wouldn't know that, right? So you'd be saying, like, well, they, they it's the it's the hip hop, and they need to just stop learning the raps and read more books, right? And not, and, and, and wash that and, history away. Right, right. So, so the question exists because they don't know history. And the reason they don't know history is because white people don't value education. Because if you valued education and the truth, then you would have to preserve that history. You would have to teach it. You would have to fight against these stupid anti-critical race theory laws, right? But they don't value education. Right, right. Like not as much and, as value supremacy and whiteness and power. And oppression. <laughs> and that, lead, you know, to that point, I always, and, and, and learned at an early age, anytime there, that culture, that majority culture is pushing one thing back at us, it's because that's actually what they're doing. Right. So telling me, oh, your people don't value education. I was like, oh, so you don't value it. Like, <laughs> like you are telling me the thing that you are doing. <laughs> by you putting it upon me, right? Just like where they're saying, oh, an activist Supreme Court. I'm like, oh, so that's what y'all doing. Y'all putting people on the Supreme Court to be activists and you know promote your own agenda rather than the other way. So I always think of it that way. And I tell people to think of it anyway, that way is like anytime that that is being professed upon us, that's actually what they're doing. You know, so watch, watch what is being put upon us and what narrative is being put upon us because that's what's actually happening and, and, and not the other way around. So I want to go, because you mentioned that whitewashing history piece because it is the focus of your upcoming book. I'm happy about this, a new book to add to my list of things to do. And you have a Black as Fuck History, the Unwhitewashed Story of America. We can cuss on this radio. That is coming out and want you to expand upon because I think it's connected to what you were just talking about of telling the true story and not this propaganda story that we've all been told, not just Black people, but just people in general. Right. So the book is the story of America on, without all of the whiteness filtered into it, right? So it's just the unvarnished truth. Now, I do take a couple of liberties, for instance, right? Like we go back to what we were talking about earlier, right? So when I talk about the people who were enslaved, or when I talk about Black people in general, I make sure I, I researched where they came from in Africa, you know, were they an Akan warrior? Were, were they come from the Nzinga people, right? And then the white people are just white people, right? And there's a point to that. And the point to that is, right, like when you sit that child out in the classroom and you talk about the English settlers and then the Dutch Dutch were in New York, and but the Spanish were in 
you know, Georgia and Florida. And then the French, they had Louisiana territory until we bought it from the French people. And then all of the black people they bought over was just Africans, right? No history, no culture, no religious imperative. They were just some black skinned people, right? So I tell my story through the inverse of that. The white people were just white people because two black people living in America, the white people were just white people. They didn't have any history or culture. Like you look at James Island in 1700, right? James Island in South Carolina, there were, it was a tiny little hamlet, a tiny little town right outside of Charleston. There were 1,500 enslaved people and 253 white people. Well, there was no way that those people could keep those people in check unless all of the white people were slave catchers because all of the white people were slave catchers. It's part of, like, if you talk about the Constitution, right, and we always talk about white supremacy being in the Constitution and we go to the three-fifths clause, but to me, the most damning part of that is the fugitive slave cause. Like the constitution says that if you are to become American, you gotta be a slave catcher, right? Like the fugitive slave cause like says that if a black person runs away, even if it's in a free state, we all slave catchers. So you gotta return that property to its owner. Every American was a slave catcher. That is the damning part to me, right? Not the three-fifths part, right? Not the gradual elimination of the slave trade. So when you know that history, right? Like when you know, and that ain't, ain't even like looking at it through the eyes of Black people. It's just saying what it was, right? When you say what it is, you remove the whitewashing. When you say, we talk about the Jamestown settlers and don't mention that, oh, you know, all of them died because there was just some rich people who came over here not knowing stuff. That ain't saying it from a black perspective. That's saying the truth, right? When you talk about that the Jamestown settlement finally had a bright light and finally looked like it was going to survive in 1619, that's not an opinion. It's a fact. It ain't even a look at it through the eyes of of, of black people. It's just looking at it through the eyes of history, right? And the American history is like that. You ain't even got a black watch it, right? You can tell the real story about it. The bloodiest war in the history of this country was fought because white people wanted to keep enslaving, murdering, and sexually assaulting people, right? It ain't an opinion. That's what they wrote down in their orders of secession. And then they didn't fight to end slavery, the union. The president of the United States says, well, if I could do this, if I could save this union without freeing a single slave, I'd do that because the slaves don't matter. The America matters. The slave catching place matters. The three fifths things matter. The gradual elimination matters. All of that matters. We don't care about the black people. That's what the president of the United States who this country voted for says. You ain't got to give an opinion or on what it means. All you got to do is write down the words and say, this is what he said, though, right? And all of the stuff that we believe, the great emancipator, that's the whitewashing. When you believe that the union fought to end slavery, that's the whitewashing because ain't nobody said it at the time. So where did we get that from, right? When we talk, you talk about taxes, none of those orders of secession had tax stuff in it. So where did we get the tax stuff and the state's rights stuff from, 
right? That's the whitewashing. All you got to do is just show their words and you can tell history more accurately or on whitewashing. And, and that's the important part, the, the propaganda that is and the story that is created around the whitewashing that is created around a thing to get people to believe in this idea, this ideal of this country and follow that narrative so it doesn't all break apart. And you can use, as you just, you know, just did the Civil War as that point. It wasn't about preserving humanity. <laughs> like in this, it was like we need to preserve this economic <laughs> institution that we have built in America. And if we let this go, if we let this part go, this is going to break apart this economic and political <laughs> like institution and this that we have built. If we let right. it go. Exactly, <laughs> right. Like right. Th that's all like that's all it, it was is like we have to keep this together. Because I remember asking, well, you know, once in figuring out like this wasn't about slavery, because, again, we were all taught this very, you know, fairy tale of it, it was to, you know, to free the enslaved. Right. But then once you, you know, get over that, it was just like, well, why were they fighting so hard to keep <laughs> like states that didn't want to be kept? <laughs> right. Like why were and it's like, oh, the finance, like the fine. Then you learn the the financial interest, the political, like it's all built upon that. It's like, oh yeah. Well, I would argue though that it's not built upon the financial interest, right? Like you ain't gonna go to war for a billionaire, right? Like it was about whiteness more than it was slavery, right? Like, cause all of the people, most of the people who fought in the Civil War didn't own slaves they had no yes. specific benefit they benefited from the institution but that benefit from that they benefit from the institution was because of their whiteness right because black people who were free in the south didn't fight for the confederate army so why like it was a race war right not and it wasn't necessarily about economics as much as it was about whiteness now the whiteness gave you economic opportunity because you know like like a famous quote that i like to use is like one of the things that they this country has done is convince white people that they're not a loser they just they're winners who hasn't won yet right like you're just a right. winner who hasn't won yet right <laughs> yeah like that's why and then when you win for... you want this stuff to be in place so that when you get to this when you get your jackpot that you're able to keep it from from that standpoint. I guess what you know in my mind, I was viewing it sort of the, the whiteness as the you know the economic pie in the sky, like the 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 fairy tale that I believe in of the American dream piece or whatever. That I have this opportunity, that I have this that white people believe is inherently theirs. Yeah, but so so one of the things that I think right is that I think so often, too often, we equate power with money. And especially Black people, especially poor people, when power is not necessarily the money, it's necessarily equivalent to money. The most powerful people are not the richest people. Like, like the Kennedy family is way more powerful than the Bill, than Bill Gates family or Jeff Bezos family. Like, like Jeff Bezos got to ask some old blue buds, white people for permission to do some things. And power is not equivalent to money and the preservation of power. Now, sometimes money is a residual effect of power, right? But 
not the two are not necessarily equivalent. So sometimes we look at the machinations and the resistance and the oppression and say it's say it's about money when it's really about white people preserving power. Those people kicked those three guys out of the Tennessee legislature, not because of the money. Like th those guys, the people who kicked them out weren't rich. Like there was just some regular dollar store white people who kicked out some more educated black people out of the, st the state legislature, not because of money, Michael, not because of money. Did they, you say dollar store white people? <laughs> did you say dollar I mean, store white people? I mean, there was some, okay, some white people from, I mean, Tennessee is America's dollar store, right? Like, you know, Tennessee was like, a. I mean, for, if you look at the history of Tennessee, Tennessee was like cut off, like every, I'm serious. Like, so when America, after the, after the American revolution, we were in debt and the Virginia and North Carolina was like, oh, we can't pay this, this debt, but we got this big piece of land that we don't care about. And that was Tennessee, but nobody wanted it. So like Tennessee was not a part of America, but it, was, it wasn't it was its own state and it wasn't a territory. It was just like a no man's land. They tried to become their own state and like they didn't have, they couldn't get enough votes in the in the Continental Congress to become their own state. They, like, they fell one vote short. And so they tried to make their own little separate state. Like Tennessee was its own country for a while because like it was America's dollar store, right? And the white people, like that's that is one of the origins of where whiteness comes from, right? Because they had this mix of of Scottish people and German people, and it was like it was just white. We got slaves, so everybody just be white. And like people used to look down on Tennessee because the oh they got Germans mixing with Irish and Irish mixing with Scottish people. Ooh, what's the well? They just white, you know, and. It was America's dollar store for a long time, right? And it was dollar this store. Description. Right. Dollar... right. I'm, and, I'm, and, then... <laughs> and so, you know, like, like even after this, like right before the Civil War, they the Tennessee passed a bill that was go, they, the Black Expulsion Bill, a Negro Expulsion Bill that would kick all of the Black, they, they were going to kick all of the free Black people out of, out of the state, give them a yeah, right. They were they were going to give them a choice. You can choose your own enslaver, right? Like you can volunteer for slavery, and you get to choose which one you want want to go with, right? Or you can leave the state, or you can stay and be re-enslaved until you can pay your fare to Africa, until you work hard yeah. enough to pay your way to Africa. Those were the three choices. It was the dollar store. And those are the people who kicked the people who built their state, the black people, the educated people out of Congress. And then again, it was not because those people care about money. It's not because they care about other white people, because if they cared about other white people, right, they would pass. They wouldn't be as poor and they wouldn't be right. like their right. state wouldn't right. be as poor. They would actually care for their citizens. They would probably yeah. have Medicaid expansion, you know, control law, which, yeah. which, which was what this whole thing started about. Right. But they don't care about that. It was about power. Right. The exercising of power. Like it sounds harsh and cruel and funny sometimes when you say it, but. 
again, I mean, you can look at the history for yourself. It's not like I'm making stuff up. This is what they said, and this is what they did. What makes this interesting to me, because, you know, leading an NAACP branch, I'm often in rooms where, you know, people ask this question of, you know, whether it's the critical race theory fight and, you know, whatever, you know, this, the structure sort of sets up as the new, you know, battle of race, <laughs> you know, that comes every, you know, every other quarter, semi-annual battle of race is what I call it. And where folks are you know, why are we creating this tension? Why are we insisting that this this information be told and insisting this history and, you know, how it's going to break apart and make people feel bad and make our children feel bad and things of that nature. And I always, I always, always, always ask white people the question on why do they identify with the enslaved, what in the enslaver? Like why when told the history, is the only response for you that you can, you know, feel bad about being the enslaver when if you know the entire history, more than likely, you're probably not on the end of that. Like there's so many other ranges of possibility that you can identify, number one. And then two, you can also identify from the human aspect, right? Like, so why? Because you've been conditioned to you know, white people equals in, you know, it's in that I, I have to identify with the white enslaver. Like there's no other possibility for me to identify with when told this history, when told this story, you know, so listening to someone who's Italian and they're just like, I'm going to made to feel bad about, I was like, dude, you weren't even white until (laughs) like a certain history. Like, why are you identifying with this? Or if you're Jewish or like, why are you identifying with the the person who enslaved or sort of committed this when told this history like what i don't understand that because the the only reason is is because first of all because we created this construct of whiteness and second it's like so what else are they going to identify with they're not going to identify with the black people so when you think about when they say, well, my ancestors didn't own slaves, but most people who owned slaves didn't, didn't, most people didn't own slaves or, or like black people own slaves too. Yeah. Right. I agree with all of that. Right. So like, I think the black people who owned slaves were slave owners and it was like, should have owned slaves either. But why don't you think that I might, I'm mad at, the black, the white people more than the black people. Why do you think, why did you even bring that up, right? You mad at slavery, not the individuals who did it. And the system, again, in the, we, we, this subject comes up all the time because when you talk about a system, they automatically think that you're talking about them. And I don't know why that would be unless you, admitting that you are part of upholding that system right like but to me to not disrupt that system is to uphold that system and and wanting to disconnect themselves as if their hands are clean you know and that if 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 i have clean hands then i don't have to be responsible for making it right or fixing something or repairing or addressing the issue because my hands are clean because I didn't own slaves. So why do I have to participate in this process to change the structural racism that exists? 
And why do we even have to do it at all? Because my hands are clean, right? Like it, it, it creates the, I feel like it's a defense, right? It's just like, I didn't personally own slaves. So why do I have to ensure that the public education system is equitable? Right? Like that's the argument that you're making. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't own slaves. So how do, why do I have to be a part of making sure, you know, the state is not continuing to participate in redlining the district, right? It's like a defense of, I wasn't involved in this thing. So I don't have to be involved in addressing the structural problem that exists. Right. And, and the, the corollary to that is, though, those are the same people who call themselves patriots. Right. Like you can't love America. And also be cool with part of it being broken, the school systems being broken, the policing being broken, you know, some of the economic systems being broken, right? The financial systems being broken for a specific group of people. Cause if you love America, you're supposed to love the whole thing. Like, like if you love, like if, if a part of your roof was leaking, you wouldn't say, well, I don't really spend a lot of time in that room. So we might as well just let the water come in on that part of the house. Right. Cause the reality is, you know, when that water comes in, it's going to affect all of y'all. You're going to get mold and then you have to breathe it in and then the roof going to cave in and then it's going to affect the whole house. And that's the same thing that is true with the racial disparities in America. Like I always point out, if you got unequal schools and bad education and bad policing and you know bad employment practices, and those you have a poor group of people in a part of the city that you don't even have to live in. Whose windows do you think those people are going to break out when they need some money? They're coming to break out your car, right? They're breaking into your car because you already been cool with the economic disparities that created the crime in your city. But ain't no black person in the part of their city, in the poor part of the city, leaving their MacBook on their car seat, right? Because there ain't no MacBooks in there. So whose windows do you think they're coming to break out? Whose houses do you think they're coming to break in, right? It all it benefits us all to create a more equitable society, not for some esoteric reason like we all love this country because we don't want our windows broken. It can be selfish. <laughs> it's like, it, like it can be that. It can be I want everybody to be educated equitably because... Like eventually, like I want my children to be able, you know, to live in this community, in this, like in this society and not a place where they're the only educated one, or we have this group of elite, like it doesn't, I agree. It doesn't. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain to people sometimes, or, or at least on that side who believe like in the fairy tale. There's something we say, those of us who are political consultants, we say that it is very difficult to convince someone that a decision they previously made was wrong. So when there's a reason why we call it political science, right? Because there's a science to a lot of the work that we do. And so saying to you, let's say, Michael, that someone you voted for, you know, was now a wrong choice. We need you to vote, <laughs> you know, for someone else. It is a, it's a, a prick at you, right? It was just like, I made this wrong decision before. It's part of the reason why incumbents get reelected 
all the time, even if they've, you know, done some other things, right? It's very difficult to convince somebody that something they believed or something they did or whatever was previously wrong, was wrong. And that same kind of psychology, I think, works in this instance of convincing people that the fairy tale that you've been told all your life you know, or of how we got here of, you know, working hard, no matter your race and ethnicity or whatever. Like that's hard to break for a lot of people. Uh, To follow up on that, to add to that, it's even harder to convince them that their mama and their grandmama was wrong. Right. 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 Like, so not only that you did a thing wrong, but all of the stuff that you believe and were taught and were raised and were like grew up thinking that was right was wrong, right? Yeah. Like that's one of the things that I think a lot of political analysts don't understand about the South, right? They keep trying to make these logical mm-hmm. arguments, not understanding that like you can't, you're not talking about what people know. You're talking about what people what they believe. believe. Right. Difference. Belief Huge difference. Is, <laughs> right. And so you can't make somebody stop believing that if they don't vote Republican, they're going to go to hell. Right. Like because it ain't no logical steps in between those two things. Right. Like they just believe that. Like if you a Democrat, mm-hmm. you want to kill babies. If you a Democrat, mm-hmm. you want to give everybody a government handout. Right. If you a Democrat, you don't really believe in God. Right. Like they you you want to have their children turn into homosexuals and like you want to destroy the fabric of the society that made this country so great. So you can't make that logical argument and expect results. I think the way you have to do it is to empower people to believe that, hey, you in this one instant can make this singular choice that benefits you, right? And it ain't got nothing to do with your mama. It ain't got nothing to do with your, like, do you think that Biden is going to kill the babies or that Stacey Abram is going to kill the babies? And even if you do, what about the illiterate, uneducated person who she's running against or who he's running against, right? That is the choice that you have to convince them of. But you can't say, like, the Republicans are wrong because that means your mama is wrong and their grandmama is wrong and the preacher at their church is wrong and the stuff that they read in the Bible that they somehow relate to politics is wrong, right? So you don't even try to convince them of that. I think you have to silo off the choices into individual acts of intelligence. And that is exactly what we do. <laughs> As actual, like actual political organizers for the thing, for the thing, and I give you even an example doing it amongst Black people during COVID, right? You know, I had the City of New York and others trying to give us money to like, you got to convince these people to take the vaccine or whatever. I'm like, okay, so first of all, I need you to understand that there is a section of Black people who are not; they have this belief, whether it's right or wrong or factual on what on the toxic. Tuskegee experiment on everything or whatever, they are not going to do this, right? Because they have this belief that you are trying to inject something into them that will do X, Y, and Z, right? Like what you have to do is talk about how do we protect, like you have to talk about it and message it in a different way. And I remember going 
like too bad, like in meetings during this thing of just like, you cannot message this as if you don't take it, you, you know, you're part of the problem. You can't do it this way. <laughs> like you have to message this way because this is people's belief that you are like you're messing with and it's not going to come across the way you think it's going to come across. So it, it's belief and, and decisions in this and making it that one particular decision based upon the choices in front of you is literally what political organizers do on a regular basis, you know, yeah, it's what I'm doing think, now. I also think like one of the ways you attack it though is with like, like if you take that COVID example, right? Mm -hmm. You say, you have to say, yeah, but we do be injecting y'all with some b bullshit, right? Right, like, you have we, to tell the truth. We didn't try to kill you before. Then they know you lying. They, they right. know you got something up your sleeve, right? But if you say, yeah, we did do that thing in Tuskegee, and then we did shoot that radioactive stuff at those black people in St. Louis, and then the black people be like, oh, I didn't even know about the St. Louis and the North Carolina right. thing. So, you know, but I think when you do that you, and you come at people with the truth, they'll understand it. But here's the problem, right? In most black people's conspiracy theories, there ain't even a grain of truth. There's like most of it is true, right? Mm -hmm. And then, because like the, vi the, the opposite is also true. Like the reason that we don't acknowledge that is back to the beginning of this conversation because they whitewashed history so much. If they mm -hmm. didn't try to convince us for so many years that uh, the Tuskegee experiment, that really wasn't it no didn't thing. Happen. And we yeah. mm -hmm. and we never done that th stuff in North Carolina or, or St. Louis. So we never experimented on black people. Then if if they'd never tried to do that, then when they say, hey, Kate, take this shot, we would have taken it. But we like you lied about the other four shots, and now you're saying you're telling the truth about this one. So the resistance to the vaccine as a result is a cumulative effect of all the other lies not just black you people lying. imagining something right like it's because you be lying not because black people are dumb <laughs> or be scared or, or we don't like to get lying. shots it's because you be lying and is it back to what your parents say to you is like your mom is just like ma why you always it because you be lying <laughs> I know from past experience when I asked you did you do said thing you gonna lie first <laughs> So I know this pattern of behavior. And if you would just tell the truth, if you would just shine a light on this, then we can come to some mutual understanding. But don't gaslight me like you ain't done this before because you have. Right. <laughs> they still have and, a conversation. And, and, see, and then that's what I try to get people to understand. Like when you see a black person, like, for instance, when they run from the police, it ain't because like we just like blue lights make us schizophrenic or anything like because y'all be shooting us right like you started out like that's why you were created to shoot us and then in the 60s you shoot us and then sprayed us with fire hoses and you beat us with billy clubs in the 70s and then, like and then all of a sudden in 2023 we supposed to believe that y'all ain't gonna shoot us when we see the video of you sh shooting us right and yeah. so the, the reason that that black person was running who you shot is because y'all be shooting us, right? So try not shooting us and see how that works out for a while. 
or also alter your behavior based upon, you know, the thing. I, I had this conversation with a police officer, a police captain who says that he was like, oh, and every time we come, they come running. I was like, okay, so why don't you alter your behavior? If you know that they're going to run every single time, like, why are you, like, why, you know where they live. <laughs> you know who they are. You know, the same thing I have about like car chasing or doing whatever. Like after you run a place, you know where they live. <laughs> you know where they're going to, right? So it's just like, all right, he gonna run. We gonna take, he left the car here <laughs> and ran yeah. into the thing. Like, I know the couple of places the person is gonna end up with. So why don't you alter your behavior? Oh, why don't I think, huh? Natural reaction for folks is to run because of this thing. So let me, let me, let me change my behavior and how I deal it, how I deal in this. Yeah, situation. but it's only one. Like it doesn't make any logical sense. I always say, right? Like if you were to start from scratch and build a system that enforces the law and makes the public safer and, you know, stops people from driving fast and stop, prevents accidents from happening, prevents violence, solves crimes. There's no way you could, you would just give 18 year olds badges and guns and say, hey, go do your thing. Train them for six weeks and say, go do your thing, right? The only logical reason you would do it, the only logical reason that someone would shoot a person who was running away after they know where they live and after they left the car is because, and this is why history is important, because your constitution say you are slave catcher. That's the only logical reason. What is the other reason? You ain't protecting nobody. You ain't serving nobody. You're not stopping a crime. You might be trying to catch somebody who committed a crime because technically all people who escaped slavery were thieves. They call it, you know, the, the theft of self, right? But ain't no reason to do it to protect people or to keep us safe unless you live in a society that deemed every person in it a slave catcher. And on that note, <laughs> we tied it up in a bow. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. <laughs> when does the book come out? Thank you for having me. September 19th, Black AF History. Oh, and I just one more announcement. June, on the week of Juneteenth, I'll be debuting a, a podcast with Sony and other tone called Drapetomaniacs. So we'll be having celebrities, Black celebrities, tell these stories from history, kind of like a, a like if the 1619 Project met drunk history. And so, uh, you know, people like Roy Wood Jr. and Joy Reid and Kev on stage and Soldier Boy telling all of these stories from Black history. So uh, tune in. It'll be on wherever you get your podcast for free. Drapetomaniacs. You know, I have to ask you, I'm going to have to ask you in a separate, this one particular story. We had a historian on recently, and I read in her book this story, you know, of we we're talking about the Second Amendment and the story. Oh, I can't think of the town right now where the white people show up to, like, get the, the people who had run away from their slavers and Frederick Douglass. Was it Frederick Douglass that helps them? to get away to freedom. And then the black people had the guns and like shot the slave owner who was coming to collect them. I have to tell you, uh, to give you that story on the side because reading that story and the, the, 
testimony of that was absolutely insane. It's related to when they passed the the law about everybody being slave slave catcher. So I got to I need I need a movie on that story, by the way, because <laughs> that was that was extremist. But I'm looking forward to the podcast. I am I love history stories and I love the way that you tell stories. So I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to the book in September and continuing to read all that you write and all of the stories that you tell. Thank you so much for making it to Sunday Civics Classroom. Thank you for having me. <laughs>